It's good to be with you again. This morning, we're going to be starting a brand new series called You Asked For It. And you did. You asked for it. We're going to take a break uh, this summer from the story. We're going to use this time to answer some of the popular questions that you have and address some of those challenging topics that are just difficult for us to understand. Over the past month or so, we asked you to submit your questions that you have about the Christian life, about faith, about the Bible, and pretty much anything that you wanted answered. Nothing was off limits. And you gave some really good questions and some very challenging topics. I've been given the great privilege of kicking off this series today, and we're going to be looking at probably one of the most challenging topics, the Trinity. Now, I know tomorrow is the 4th of July, but my goal for today is to not start the fireworks too early. In other words, I don't want this to be so confusing that your heads explode, okay? The goal today is to address the question, or more specifically, the topic of the Trinity, but explained in easy-to-understand language, which is a very big challenge. I can remember in my younger days of hearing the Trinity explained like this, like water, right? Water can exist in three forms. It's a solid, liquid, or gas, right? And I thought, well, that's a pretty good way of looking at it. You may have heard of something similar, maybe an egg, you know, the three different parts of the egg, or maybe a clover, Um, It has three parts or three petals, yet it's still one clover, right? Or or my favorite is the Snuggie. (laughs) Anybody got a Snuggie for Christmas? Right? It's a blanket. It's a robe. And it's a terrible gift all in one. Those illustrations are, are helpful to us in trying to, to comprehend the Trinity, but they still fall way short in actually defining the Trinity. You see, water, it can't exist as a solid, liquid, and gas completely at the same time. And the parts of the clover are simply just pieces of the clover, One end or one part isn't the entire clover itself. So I want to be upfront with you before I start. I want to be completely honest with you this morning. There are some things that we just won't ever understand. No matter how hard we try or how bad we want to. There are things in this world, in this life, that we just won't be able to fully grasp. And guess what? It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. A theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem states this, that the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension. God is mysterious, folks. He's mysterious, and that's good. If we could fully understand and comprehend God, well, then he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? There's something good about the mystery of God. Something that demands genuine faith from us. Something that requires believing without actually seeing. 
trusting and worshiping without fully understanding. And while we cannot fully understand the Trinity, it's extremely important that we, that we realize its existence. And hopefully today you can see that. So let's begin to sort of unpack this topic. We'll begin by looking at what the Trinity is to the best way we can, and then we'll finish up with why it's important. So what is the Trinity? We've already stated that we can't fully comprehend the Trinity. We can put that to the side. We can take that off the table. And remember, we're, we're okay with that, right? Are we okay with that? Good. Um, it's a mystery. So the Trinity cannot be fully defined, but it can be described. It can't be fully defined, but it can be described. We can't exactly define it. We can't exactly comprehend it, but it can be described. And the Trinity can be described as this. One God existing as three persons. Think of it this way. The Trinity is one what and three who's. Okay. One what being the supreme almighty God. And three who's consisting of the three persons within God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The fact is that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. I've got a little story for you. Back when I was younger, Angela and I just moved to Tazewell, and uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses come by. And she hates that time because she runs and hides. I like it. So... Um, you know, I'm eager to answer the door and talk to these people, and, and we start talking about the Trinity. And I'm like, okay, the Trinity is in the Bible. So you're denying what's in the Bible. They said, it's not in the Bible. I said, hold on, let me grab my Bible. So here I am looking. I said, wait, I know it's in here. Just give me time to find it. Never found it. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. However, evidence of the Trinity is clear in Scripture. And a basic way of viewing this is, scripturally speaking, over time, God has revealed himself to mankind as three persons. As we read through the Bible, we see characteristics of God revealed in more than one person or more than one essence. So what I want to do, starting off with, is I want to start by making a case for the plurality of persons in God. In other words, what do we see that would lead us to believe that God actually exists as more than one person? Now with this, I can't just say because I told you so, right? That won't help you at all. Maybe with my daughter, she'll believe anything I say just because I said it, right? But with us, I want us to take everything that we learned today straight out of God's Word. Because then... Guess what? If that's not good enough, that's on you, not me, right? So God existing as more than one person. Let's get right into it. Let's look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So this is God speaking when, when mankind was created. And notice the use of the plural terms, us an hour. It could have easily said, let me make mankind in my image, but it doesn't say that. Right at the beginning of creation, right at the beginning of the Bible, actually, 
we see an indication of the plurality of persons in God. And this occurs in many other places throughout the Bible. But to me, a radical verse to look at is Isaiah 6, 8. It says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here we see a singular pronoun, I, and a plural pronoun, us, used in the same sentence. And both of these point back to one Lord, the voice of one Lord or God. So for me, it's, it's clear. The Bible supports a plurality of persons within God. So you might be asking, does that mean that there's more than one God? Does that mean there are three different gods? Not at all. The starting point is that we get the basic idea of plurality, and then we can build a foundation upon that. So I want to transition here to some foundational truths about God in relation to the Trinity. Are you ready? Are you with me? No fireworks yet, please. Here is the description of the Trinity. Remember, it can't be fully defined, but it can be described. God is three persons. Each is fully God. There is one God. That's the description of the Trinity. And I know this sounds like a contradiction. I mean, three, but yet one? I mean, come on, really? It's not. It's not a contradiction. Remember the quote from Wayne Grudem. The Trinity is a mystery. And even though it's a mystery, we can walk away with some foundational truths. So let's start to unpack each one of these. First, we'll look at God is three persons. Let's look at when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. In that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we're familiar with this. This passage is significant because here at one moment, we have all three members of the Trinity performing three different activities at the same time. God the Son is being baptized. God the Father is speaking from heaven. And God the Holy Spirit is descending, coming down from heaven to empower Jesus for his earthly ministry. In one picture, in, in one snapshot, we see God as more than one person at the same time. Another verse which is well known to us is also a good verse to view in light of what we're talking about. Before Jesus returns to the Father, he met with his disciples and gave them this great commandment or this great commission in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right when he was baptized, that's the beginning of his earthly ministry, and at the very end before he ascends to heaven to be with his Father, we see an emphasis on the Trinity. And this commandment, this, this commission, this, as Christians, this is our call, isn't it? 
This is our mission, to make disciples, to make followers of Christ, and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice all three names are mentioned, but we are to baptize them in the singular name of God. It doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Instead, it says baptize them in the name. So a singular God made up of three persons. God is three persons. The next foundational truth is each is fully God. Just because we've concluded that God is three persons doesn't mean that each person is one-third or 33% God. But the mystery, remember the mystery of the Trinity, is that God is three persons and each person is fully God. So let's look at each person of the Trinity a little bit. God the Father is basically acknowledged, right? I mean, for the most part, we don't have problems with this. God the Father is, is God. That's almost a given for us. But if each member of the Trinity is fully God, then that means that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God too. Well, how do we prove that? Again, let's look at the Bible to give us this information. Let's look at John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So here, Christ is referred to as the Word. And John says that He was with God and that He was God. And that Christ was involved in the creation of all things. So before creation, the Son was with God and the Son was God. The Son has always been and will always be fully God. Further, I love this verse in Colossians 2. Look at this with me. For in Christ, so it's pretty plain there, right? In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Jesus Christ is God. Not just partly God, not just one-third God, but all the fullness of deity, which means fully and completely God. And if that's not enough for you, this next verse is very compelling. This seals the deal. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John is emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ. He hasn't just seen God. He hasn't just been with God. It isn't just sort of this partnership that they have going on. But the Son is himself God. Not a created being, not an angel, not a sub-level type God. The second member of the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus Christ is fully God. So if we're good with God the Father being God, 
And we looked at how Scripture supports the Son being fully God. Next, we have the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. This is when a couple uh, sold some property and made, made some money, and they were dishonest in their giving to the church. So let's read together. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. So at the beginning, Peter tells Ananias that he has lied to the Spirit. And then he goes on to say that you haven't just lied to us, but to God. In other words, to lie to the Holy Spirit is the same thing as lying to God. And in numerous other passages, God's Spirit is equated with God himself. So each member of the Trinity is fully God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons making up one God. And that brings us to the last foundational truth. There is one God. There is one God. And there's no shortage of Scripture to support this. The truth that there is only one God. The persons of the Trinity are, are one. They are one in nature, one in essence. And essence can be described like this. It's what you are. It's, it's the stuff that you consist of. A familiar passage in the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's nobody like our God. There's no one like our God. God is completely unique. There, there are not multiple gods. There aren't three different gods that we are to worship, but we are to worship one God. And based on the fact that Scripture teaches or supports that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons and based on the fact that Scripture teaches that each is fully God, we must conclude this, that all three are the same God. You cannot reach another conclusion. All three are the same God. There is only one God. The Trinity is not three different ways of looking at God. It's not three different gods, but three different persons making up the same God. So there you go. That's the Trinity explained. The simplest that I know how to explain it. You might be thinking, what does this mean to me? I mean, is this like taking three years of Spanish or calculus in high school? <laughs> I mean, what am I supposed to do with this information, right? One big God existing as three persons. I mean, how does this help me? Here's how it's helpful. I believe the Trinity gives us a framework for our lives. The way that God actually exists helps us tremendously. The makeup of, of this amazing God gives us a framework for living out the Christian life. And the framework is this. Communicate with the Father. 
follow the Son, and live through the Spirit. Communicate with the Father, follow the Son, and live through the Spirit. So let's look at communicate with the Father. Because of Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. If you have repented of your sin and you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you have direct access to God the Father through prayer. The Bible says that when Jesus was crucified, the veil, which was this large curtain separating the presence of God from the people, and only the the priests were able to go behind the veil and, and actually be in God's presence, this large veil was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil was actually torn by God, representing our immediate access to him. We pray to the Father. We talk to the Father. We communicate with the Father. When we think about what a father actually is in our context, and I'm aware that some of you didn't have a father, or maybe you had a really bad one, but a good father loves A good father protects. A good father provides. A good father listens. I know when my kids are scared, they run to me. When my kids are sad, they they come to me for comfort. When my kids are excited, they run fast to me and they tell me all about it. And when they have questions, they ask me. And they keep asking me. They want and they expect me to communicate with them. They place this high value on communicating. Noah talks all day. And he talks all night. (laughs) When we're trying to sleep, he's still asking questions. You've heard of uh, sleepwalking. This is sleep talking, right? That's what Noah does. And it's the same with God the Father. He's there. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to value that. He wants us to love that open line of communication. And he wants us to sort of nurture that. Think about this. A father and a child relationship doesn't mean very much without communication, does it? It pretty much doesn't exist without communication. So we are to communicate with the Father. Next, follow the Son. Jesus Christ came into this world. He lived a sinless life. There was absolutely no sin found in him. He was tempted and he was tried just like any human, any one of us. But he always passed the test. He never sinned. Jesus showed what it looked like to obey and abide in the Father. Think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were obedient to the Father. They lived with the Father. They were abiding with the Father. They had this perfect relationship with the Father until what? They sinned. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus was the better Adam, that he lived the life that Adam did not, the obedient and abiding life. Through the Son, We see Jesus as our example. We see Jesus Christ as our role model. Anybody have role models when they were younger? Two of you? 
when I was young, my hero was Michael Jordan. I was so obsessed with this guy. So I watched his games. I bought all of his posters that I could buy, put them up in my room. But I didn't just admire him. I actually wanted to be him. I bought this video that he put out called Come Fly With Me. Anybody ever seen that? Amazing video. I watched it over and over again. Carefully studying him. Studying his moves. And even how he looked. And then as soon as it was over, I would go out. And I would practice at home in my driveway. Practice his moves. Trying to be exactly like him. I even cut my hair short. Now I don't have to. I'm good. I even wore uh, wristbands on my arms. I even bought this black knee brace, and I wore it on my left leg, and I didn't even need it. Just because Michael Jordan was wearing a black knee brace on his left leg, I did. You see, I would, I would go outside, and I would lower the goal just a little bit, so that I could practice these, these moves and these dunks. And I would even stick my tongue out while I was doing them. <laughs> so that was an obsession. A crazy obsession. You laugh at me, you had the same thing. But you know what? It was good for me. It gave me something to shoot for. It gave me someone to look up to, right? And, and something to work towards. It gave me ambitions. It gave me goals. And, and here's the truth. I worked very hard at it. For the Christian, Jesus is our role model. He is our hero. He is who we are to be obsessed with. We should want to be more like him. We should look at how he lived We should look at how he loved, how he served, how he had compassion, and how he obeyed the Father. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You deny yourself, and you try to become more like him. So communicate with the Father. Follow the Son. And then, as we finish up, live through the Spirit. When Jesus left this world to return to the Father, he didn't just leave us to be all by ourselves. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was sent to us to help us live out our lives. Jesus referred to the uh, Spirit as the helper or the counselor. How do we make it day to day? How do we make it through those difficult times in our life? The seemingly impossible moments that we just we think we can't get past. How do we get past those? How do we, how do we carry on when we're afraid? Through God's Spirit. The Spirit helps us to carry on despite our fears. The Spirit helps us to move forward despite those big challenges and obstacles that are directly in front of us. The Spirit counsels us when we are hurting, and when we're overwhelmed. In those critical moments, 
We don't have to worry about being all alone. We don't have to worry about not having the strength to make it because the Spirit is there to comfort us and to make up for our weaknesses. Another thing that the Spirit does is it gives us the power to carry out the plans that God has for us. In Acts, Jesus told his followers that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and that they would be his witnesses in all of the world. That's a great task. But you know what? We have a great God. And we don't have to worry about what we can't do or being inadequate or not being strong enough to follow through because God has given us his power through his spirit. He is our helper. The Spirit also helps us as we try to follow Jesus. When we're modeling our lives after Jesus, the Spirit gives us direction. The Spirit gives us guidance, encouraging us to follow, to grow, to mature. And in those moments when we wander off that path that God has for us, the Spirit's there to pull us back, to convict us of sin, to guide us back on the path where God wants us to be. You see, the Spirit is our helper, our counselor, our guidance to live out our lives, to follow Christ in this very broken and this very painful world. And this whole idea of the Trinity doesn't need to be some distant unknown to us. Hopefully today you've been able to see the reality of the Trinity and to see how it's, it's not a doctrine for the really smart or the really religious people, but the Trinity is a doctrine of the everyday. It's a doctrine for the everyday person. Through the Trinity, we have an amazing God. We have an awesome God that we can worship, that we can know, that we can have a relationship with, and... We have a framework intended to help us get through this life. That is our God. Here's what I want us to do, and we're closing. This week, let's just be amazed by God. I know a lot of us, a lot of you might be going to see fireworks, and uh, fireworks are something that amazes me, especially the really big ones. You know, um, think about with the kids watching the fireworks and they're ooh and ah and wow and be like that with God. Listen, if you ever get used to God, you need to change that. God needs to amaze you each and every day. God needs to be the one blowing you away. God is the one that needs to leave you in awe. So let's be amazed by God and then finally... Let's live out that framework that God has designed to help us live our lives. It's there to help us. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at how awesome and how great that you are. And, Father, we understand that we will never fully be able to comprehend you. But that's okay. 
we worship you anyways because you are awesome. You are amazing. And so, Father, we thank you for this, this truth that you revealed to us, that you are a great God, that you are God in three persons, yet you remain one God. That you've given us this framework to live out this life. To pray to you, God the Father. To follow you, God the Son. And to live our life through you, God the Holy Spirit. Father, that shows that you love us. That you are always with us. That you are on our side. That you are for us. And if you are for us, what could stand against us? So, Father, for those of us that have a relationship with you, I pray that that relationship be strengthened. That we would just be amazed by you and that we would follow out that framework that you've given us to live this life. And if there's somebody here that that hasn't committed their life to you, Father, I pray this morning that through the Son, they would enter into an everlasting relationship with you. That today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, go with us. Help us to, to be more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.